0: It's the biggest thing I've seen to hit investor relations in 30 years. You're listening to the Tigger Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Here's your host, Jeff Cassette.
1: Hi everyone. Alert listeners will recall your previous ticker podcast, wherein our good friend Brian Matt argued that society and capital markets, not government and regulators, would be the driving force behind an acceleration of ESG and consequent green recovery. Today's guest sees things differently. Patrick Mitchell is co-founder of London-based shareholder intelligence consultant Investor Update. Last year, Investor Update published a white paper. It collected the perspectives of top ESG specialists on the new challenges facing capital markets and the forces for and against corporates adopting ESG in their business and communications strategies. For now, the ESG reporting landscape, predictably, is critically fragmented dearth of standards is causing some companies to throw up their metaphorical hands. This paralysis is dangerous. In the US, the SEC's rules in this area have remained essentially unchanged for decades. But across the pond, Patrick Mitchell says things may be coming together. Indeed, the sheer velocity of change, and not just regulatory change, is itself perhaps the biggest risk facing public companies today. On today's Ticker Podcast, Patrick Mitchell on taking ESG seriously. As your professional skeptic, I began our conversation opining on the wokeness of U.S. corporate directors. Let's dive in. I want to ask you about your clients, essentially, Um, your, your clients, I mean, are, are they starting from scratch? I guess there's a difference between the UK and the UK, but uh, a year later, you know, we've been into this, mean, certainly investors are aware of uh, the relevance of ESG data, but my apprehension is that directors and companies aren't.
0: Yeah, it's a really good point you make, and, and uh, just so you know, we work with companies in the UK, but also across the entire EMEA region. Um, Europe is a big market for us. So we're working in multiple markets where you have um, different frameworks um, and you also have different understandings of what is important in terms of ESG. So um, the UK now we're um, due to Brexit we're out of um, EU regulation including some of the regulation that pertains to, to ESG. So it it will be interesting how um, UK corporates um, move forward in terms of their ESG disclosure, but in terms of continental Europe, they're under a single um, framework which is regulated by the EU. Um, And it's interesting um, how companies, just in discussions that we've had with them over the past six to 12 months, how quickly they feel that ESG has come up upon them. It's, mm. it's been like a train that's come around the corner really, really quickly. Um, and that's down to a couple of factors. One, in terms of you know, institutions um, bringing up more in, uh, in whether it's group meetings, one-to-one meetings, um, information requests. Uh, so it, it's questions around ESG are being asked more by the buy side. But then you're also in a situation where you have the regulators are regulating the market a lot more um, and we'll see a big, you know, big change in 2021 come March where all European institutions will now have to have discussions with their clients i.e. the beneficial owners um, and asking them the question would you like your portfolio to have an ESG focus so the EU have been very smart in in terms of uh, putting the onus on um, the investor To spread the ESG message um, because again European institutions will be measured on their ESG exposure and then in terms of corporates, corporates are being regulated in terms of um, you know again depending on the um, sector that you're in but they're also being um, asked to disclose not just their own um, emissions, their carbon emissions and other emissions and and other factors uh, in terms of ESG, but they're also having to disclose on behalf of their supply chain. Hmm. So, again, uh, EU have been really smart in terms of putting, you know, not having them to to regulate that, but uh, forcing corporates to regulate themselves and to ask the questions of their suppliers. And, you know, there are a lot of companies out there, and, we, you know, during the white paper that we, we published, we interviewed companies such as, you know, AstraZeneca, Nova Nordisk, BMW, um, Nestle. You know, some of these the supply, chain can, supply chains can run into tens of thousands of suppliers. So you'll, you'll have an issue where a corporate will have to, literally, line by line, supplier by supplier, have to ask the questions of those suppliers. You know, are you know, are you doing the things that you're supposed to be doing?
1: And this is being this is being initiated by by regulators and the government, at less than sort of organically by capital markets and, and kind of a commitment to ESG by investors.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting. One of the questions we asked during the white paper uh, to investors: Do you welcome? Uh, regulatory change. And and I think without exception, and we spoke with investors such as, you know, Fidelity, uh, Invesco, T. Rowe Price, Columbia Threadneedle, and and they welcome that because I think they all understand and accept that if they're left to regulate themselves, it just won't get done. And it does require um, change, uh, regulatory change to make this happen. You know, and, and we saw you know, last year we call it the Greta effect. That you know, the the E part of the acronym was in the press almost on a daily basis, where you know everyone was focused on the environment. But then in 2020, we saw that you know the S part of the acronym came into focus, mm-hmm. and companies were being measured on how well they were supporting staff, um, you know how you know how well they cope with you know, redundancies. Um, uh, what we have over here in the UK, furloughing of, um, of staff, keeping them employed, but the government paying 80% of their salaries and so on. So it was interesting, right at the beginning of the, of the crisis, we had a few companies that come under the spotlight where they were using COVID as an opportunity to rationalise their business, laying off staff and then re-employing them under new terms. So um, I, I think there was quite a few companies that kind of fell foul of that. And I think they they will be held to pass for that um, by by investors that have a true focus on ESG.
1: Yeah, that is that is kind of an issue. You know, in the very last podcast I, I did, I spoke to someone who who don't don't want to entirely misquote him, but he basically said, you know, governments and regulators, at least in the U.S., are, are just too busy with COVID. He he made that argument. Plus, mm-hmm. plus, you know, they're broke. And 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 he was he was arguing that it will be c- capital markets. Um, sort of organically, I guess as he said, as a reflection of society that will step up to the plate and, and solve all these issues. Um, you, Warren Buffett takes a different view of that apparently, and, and, and so do you if i 'm understanding you correctly I don't,
0: yeah i don 't I don't agree with that at all i don 't think we can rely upon the capital markets to regulate themselves, um, and I think yes, under the Trump administration, that would have perhaps been the only way that anything would have happened and we did see you know some big big corporates actually take it seriously and and also some very large U.S. institutions, you know, like Fidelity Investigo, T. Rowe, um, that have a real focus on ESG and do have concerns. But without regulation, without forcing investors and corporates to change, it just won't happen. But I think with the new administration coming in, um, it's clear that, um, that they do have an interest in, in, in the environment and, um, they will be, you know, signing back up to the Paris Accord and so on. So mm-hmm. I think things will change, uh, positively. Uh, but they do, they will have to run to catch up in the U.S. Um, but you've got to remember the big capital flows do come from the U.S. So, um, until they make changes themselves, um, we won't see that. In, in the way that we're seeing it, you know, uh, in Europe. So a, a good example would be, you know, France. Uh, all French institutions, as of 12, 18 months ago, have been regulated to disclose their their ESG profiles based on the, the investments that, that they have. Um, that's happening now across the rest of Europe. So we're making those changes. Um, investors are having to focus a lot more than they once did. And then you'll have that with the new administration in the US, I would imagine that will be replicated. Uh, And then so globally, you'll have investors that will draw the line in the sand in terms of certain investments that they can and can't make. Um, And then corporates, which will either make a change, um, either do things that they're they're required to do, or they'll have to consider going private because uh, Mm there'll be a lack of institutional investment
1: that can invest in them. Huh. huh. I, th- I think the private market is, is um, I think, perhaps just as concerned, maybe even more than the institutional
0: market about sort of ESG issues. Um, I don't know if you have a thought on that. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has to be concerned. And uh, and again, this is one of the things that come out of the white paper. One of the questions that we asked was, you know, is ESG only for those companies that can afford it, uh, as in that can make those changes, that can suck up the costs? Or is it just, you know, um, you know, sh- shouldn't a small business just forget it? But the, the, the answer uniformly from everyone was like, no, everyone, everyone can make a change, no matter how small. And... Also, some of the other things that came up from the white paper was the whole fact around greenwashing, uh, Mm. are a lot of companies actually just going about this change to attract these new pools of capital, um, just box ticking and uh, and so on. Um, And it was quite interesting. a, A couple of the interviewees did say, "Look, you know, we really don't care." how they got onto the path of ESG because you, you do find that there are a lot of corporates that start off greenwashing and box ticking and then end up saying well actually investors see through that quite quickly so at least it's actually got them onto the path to actually thinking about they should be doing something about ESG but as I say it's, it's still a, a relatively young um, you know, industry in terms of, you know, it's the biggest thing I've seen to hit investor relations in 30 years. And I, I've, I've been in IR since the late 80s. Um, and it's, and because it's backed by corporates, because it's the regulators that are pushing this, that it, this is not a, this is not blockchain. This is not Bitcoin. It's not here today, gone tomorrow. This is not a fad. This is real. Uh, and then when you consider the amount of funds that are invested through ESG investment, um, the latest figures are 30 trillion plus globally and growing exponentially, this is not going away. And you look at certain investors such as T. Rowe, everything that they touch now goes through an ESG filter. The same with Fidelity. Um, We interviewed Investco currently, they have about three to 5% of of their assets under management which have an ESG focus. They've got an ambition by 2023 for everything to go through an ESG filter. So it's serious. And I think for those corporates that think, well, you know, I've got something else to do. I'll do that first and I'll get round to ESG. I I, I I, think they're making a big mistake because ESG is such a big issue for everyone. That if they don't, they'll miss out. They'll be, I always say, the first to the table will be fed. And if you allow everyone else to take advantage of, um, you know, Taking ESG seriously and, and then benefiting from that. And it's not just what you can gain in terms of additional pools of capital. It's protecting what you've got. Mm. And I think a lot of companies don't recognize that. And that's, that's the problem is that, you know, we're speaking with lots and lots of companies now. And some of them are in you know, high, high carbon emitting sectors where they're worried about the current levels of investment that they have, which will be forced to rotate purely because it'll, there'll be a whole change in policy for those institutions where they can't you know, invest in certain classes of companies.
1: How far away are we, and the velocity of change, as you say, is is surprisingly quick, but how far away from sort of ESG just being mainstream
0: and, and, and not yeah, even- mainstream, Yeah, mainstream, yeah. Oh, yeah. This came up in the white paper as well, in terms of many institutional investors Have mentioned or felt that they don't see the ESG acronym existing beyond the next three to five years because it will just be investing Uh, and it will just be the way that we invest Um, and it will just be a sustainable part of you know building your risk profile when you're looking at at a company you know when you're doing your analysis it will just be part of that that will be one factor that you look at but it'll be a very important one so I would say in the next three to five years it will be mainstream so so companies who are companies a lot of time <laughs> yeah expensive.
1: yeah, right. yeah. Well, sort of two questions it looks like the european countries are going to have an advantage here over the united states uh no matter what it does um because they're mm-hmm. the, to use a phrase kind of still peeing in the pool and and not really getting getting woke but i mean what happens to companies that that ignore this or at least you know a, a, a approach it oddly
0: i think it's an existential question they need to ask themselves
1: is that is it by is it going to literally affect american companies uh, companies based in america that
0: Well, absolutely it, it will if you think that you know and obviously to a lesser degree but as i say with the new administration coming in it's america will just be catching up and they're not you know yes they are far behind it, i think there's two schools Though The believers and the non-believers, the, the believers who believe that ESG is the way forward, that every company has to change and will have to change, and there's been studies done for those companies that do take ESG seriously. They tend to be you know, better companies, more profitable companies, because if you, if you consider there's various factors that uh, if you don't conform, uh, access to capital will cost a, a lot more. So just traditional lending. Again, in, in Europe, companies are now um, rated based on their ESG profiles. So those with poor ESG scores pay more money, hmm. to, to borrow money. Uh, access to green bonds, just not you will not have access to them if you don't have a decent ESG profile. Regulation. Again, you can have regulatory change. You'll be forced to do things. You'll be taxed more if you don't. If you have a poor ESG score, And finally, in terms of institutional investment, there'll be certain institutions, and a lot of them. I, I think this is going to happen a lot, where the uh, ESG um, governance will, will say, "No, no, no. You, here's a list of companies that you cannot invest in, um, portfolio manager. This is, you know, this is the line in the sand. You, you, these are the companies that you can, and these that you can't." Um, and, and I think that's the way it's going to be. Globally,
1: ultimately, uh, it's sort of a, an exclusionary model, essentially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, and you know, that's one thing that ESG currently is. It's um, so, for instance, SRI was exclusionary. If you fell into certain categories, mm-hmm. um, you were just not investable. Whereas ESG is is more inclusionary, where they tend to invest in companies that underperform and lobby for change, which I think is a really good approach. But well, more and more funds are having specific lines in the sand, where it will be, you know, if you, you know, mine coal, if you drill for oil, you know, if you make conventional, uh, if you make um, weapons, um, all of these things, there will be lines in the sand. So, but the, there will be degrees of ESG, what we call light touch, and then ESG focused investment. So, um, it will depend from institution to institution, fund to fund, the level of ESGness. Um, there will be. But again, for for a lot of companies, for a lot of investors, um, there will be a certain class of of corporate out there that will just not be investable. Um, And it will be interesting to see uh, how they raise capital.
1: I was speaking to a fund manager who Invested in companies that that weren't doing very well on their their ESG reporting uh, Mm -hmm. strategy, Um, but they engaged with them because their philosophy was, and gosh, I can't remember his exact term, but it was, okay, here are companies that are, we're going to be on the ground floor. These people are still not uh, developing a a, a sensible ESG strategy. We're going to sort of advise them a little bit. And and um, once they do have an ESG, we'll be you know on the ground floor, one of the first investors, and that's kind of our strategy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's
0: a lot of institutions out there. They consider it value investing. They're looking for, for companies that underperform in terms of ESG. Yes. As you say, getting yeah. on the <laughs> ground floor, these companies aren't best priced and it gives them a great opportunity. So, yeah, there's a, there's a big market for that. And also there's another class of investing where you have what's called impact investing where mm-hmm. you'll take a, a stake in a business and help them to do something meaningful in terms of ESG, whether it's you know, to reduce their carbon emissions to um, increase social inclusion and other factors so there's lots of different ways that uh, ESG uh, investors can um, you know uh, make positive change and also in what we expect to see in 2021 is the rise of ESG activism because Hmm. there are an awful lot of companies out there which will be easy targets easy prey for an ESG activist where they can come in and again uh, typically, ASG, uh, sorry, um, activists have had a, a bad name where they're, they're seen as opportunists. Whereas they'll only ever be seen as white knights coming in because, again, they'll be highlighting uh, corporates that you know underperform in terms of you know the, e, the S, or the G, um, and they'll be here to, to lobby for change or, or, or pushing uh, for change. So um, I, I do think that and we've seen it here in the UK. We've seen uh, TCI, one of the biggest um, activist investors out there, uh, have a real keen in- interest in ESG and they're going after companies um, in the UK and across Europe uh, and it will grow. Um, there are ESG activist funds that are being created, um, you know, not on a weekly basis, but um, more and more of these um, these investors see ESG as an opportunity to engage with the companies that are um, not doing what, what they're supposed to be doing.
1: And, and I think, Patrick, kind of along those lines, uh, just to bring it up to date, what, what do you make of the move? Uh, some corporations, they're, they're doing it kind of in different ways, but they're, they're cutting off. I think this is a huge, incidentally, a, a whole new ball game, right up there with COVID. But they're cutting off campaign contributions to people who you know, pretended the election was illegitimate. And I don't know if they're just mm-hmm. doing that uh, proactively or if their investors are saying, you know, <laughs> you've got to do this. That's another kind of activism, almost.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the great thing about the financial markets is you can have two people with opposing views and both arguably are correct, um, whereas other sectors, oil, you drill a hole in the ground, there's oil, You're, you know, airlines, you, you fly a plane. That, you know, whereas financial markets, both views are valid. Um, and it is interesting to see, you know, how... Certain companies in the U.S. Uh, I think Exxon's an example of of a company that's just saying, no, we 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 don't agree with the whole, you know, um, you know this whole ESG movement. We we just are just not going to do the things that other companies are, are doing, and I find that really interesting. And it's it's almost trying to, you know, um, stand up against that tide. Um, hmm. It, it, it is interesting how you can have differing views. Um, I agree with some, disagree with others, but um, how things will, will change, I think only time will tell. And, and But I do think it's, um, there are a lot of investors out there, or sorry, a lot of corporates out there who are completely unaware of how quickly this is happening. Um, and they will, to a degree, the Boat, all be late to the party.
1: Huh. Well, let me let me back up a bit and and maybe given that i mean what is the the role of ir in all this um I mean, does, yeah. do ir I mean, people come to you or is it sort of management or directors or how does that work well, they
0: do uh, and you know and it's an interesting question in terms of where should esg sit within the corporate hmm. um some companies have um ESG specialists within the institution. They'll have maybe a sustainability officer um, that reports into into management. Uh, Other teams are run by IR. Hmm. I I think the natural place for um, ESG to sit with is within IR, uh, but perhaps with a specialist, an ESG specialist, reporting directly into IR, but also into into the board as well because it has to come from the top down if ESG isn't being um, distilled down from the top it just won't be accepted by the buy side they will just see this as box ticking um, so there has to be um, serious commitment from management um, so absolutely it should be uh, because if you consider IR is is the you know the the coal face of um, and the conduit between the investment community and, and management so it makes sense that it sits there. Um, in terms of, and you know, we hear this a lot. Well, you know, we take ESG seriously. We produce all of this sustainability information, but we're not getting asked these questions. But the problem is that typically, is meeting with PMs, and it's not the PM that um, dictates the the ESG. Uh, strategy of the institution. It's the ESG specialist that more and more they're getting involved in meetings and they're coming along and, and asking those questions. So um, a bit like governance, it's not the portfolio manager that um, has the last say in the same with ESG. It's the ESG specialist with the institution, the ESG committee um, that makes the decisions on who they can and can't invest in.
1: So, I, okay, but but I mean, is there an opportunity for IR people to to step into this? Do they have to just completely change their skill sets, or do they have to lobby management essentially for you know hire hire an ESG guy who's going to come along with me on my road shows? Or, or I mean, how does that? Mm-hmm. I know that sounds kind happens. of vague, but yeah. how, how does that? How does that practically? How do you? Yeah. How does that work?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it does depend on you know the budget of, of you know corporates. But what we are finding is that you know. IR teams, you know, in mid to large cap companies are making those hires, those additional hires, where they're bringing in specialists or or people who can at least be trained in in the area of ESG. So, absolutely, because if you consider, you know, an IR a typical IR manager has an awful lot on his or her plate as it is. Um, they're getting constant requests for you know, information in terms of ESG, in, in terms of disclosure but being inundated with it um, and that's one of the concerns, one of the things that come up again in the white paper was the, you know, the, the endless requests that they're getting um, and so teams are having more and more work piled upon them and it's only really come to the surface in the past 12 to 24 months uh, and for those teams that can't broaden their teams. They'll, they'll just be swimming in this, and that's the problem. Is that you know, if a corporate needs wants to take this um, seriously, they're going to have to have a sustainability function within IR or a separate team within within the business,
1: or or at least hire a good consultant. Um, <laughs> and, and the, I'm sure there are a lot of good consultants out there, um, mm-hmm. uh, Patrick. Without being too, uh, I don't know, but I mean, how how would how can you choose a consultant let's say you're just kind of starting what you call the esg journey um, mm-hmm. and you're the ir guy how, how do you, how do you know who to just how do you choose
0: that's a really good question and i think you know if you consider that esg is a relatively new um, you know phenomenon that it's still not 100% and, and the problem is that corporates the, the first question they ask us is you know what should we be disclosing because there are no the guidelines do not say you need to disclose this this and this and this right. so there are no set standards so people are really, the problem with with corporates is that they they don't necessarily know where to start um, and they also don't know how well they're doing because using a, an ESG score to benchmark how successful your ESG disclosure is we all know the, the issues around you know you can get a triple A from MSEI and a severe from Sustainalytics. You know, Tesla is a great example of that. So um, what we do, what we developed um, earlier in the year was a way to measure the level of ESG ownership in in our client and then measure that against a, a peer group and also the market. And that gives you a really good indication because you're not just relying on, on a single ratings agency, you're relying on the investment um, uh, that, You know, savvy of of hundreds of investors that have chosen to invest through ESG focused investments. So, we feel that measuring the ESG level of investment is a far better way than looking at a single score. So, that's a good starting point. And then, on the back of that, you need to then take a look at the overall ESG disclosure. because what we we would never do as a business and I think there are a lot of advisory firms out there that are not best placed to do this is to tell a company what their ESG strategy should be but there are companies out there including ours that are well placed to actually tell you what you should and should not be disclosing and how you should be doing that.
1: You're listening to The Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, the sound
0: of global investor relations.
1: The whole paper looks at some of the uh, 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 forces for and against companies uh, adopting an ESG strategy. And one of the things you pinpoint is... Is the ratings providers and and they look at them and they go. You mentioned Tesla and they go. We don't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. So you're you're saying you have to you have to tweak it a little bit. You have to uh, be more sort of specific to your own company and, and 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 that and and give less. I'm just wondering how you engage with these rating providers or if you even do. <laughs> well, you
0: do well, the thing is that you can't and and that's the problem. So. One of the biggest issues that came out of the white paper, and we spoke with, you know, some of the biggest institutions and corporates on the planet, where the issue that they have with ratings agencies is their papers That um, no one understands how they're coming up with their their ratings, that they're black boxes, um, and they have no visibility into that. And and unlike um, a Southside analyst, if you if you disagree with a piece of research that he or she does on you, you can pick up the phone and have a, an intelligent discussion. Whereas with a rating agency, you can't. Um, and also the problem with a, a rating is it's typically backwards looking. Mm. Uh, whereas if you measure ESG ownership levels, it's ongoing. Um, so again, it's, it's more real time. So, um, you know, what we're not looking to do is, is we're not looking to be an alternative um, to a rating agency. Um, because there obviously is a place for that. And what you do find is that a lot of the um, institutional investors are taking not the rating, but they're taking the research from the likes of MSCI, S&P, Refinitiv, and others, and then plugging that into their own black box to come up with their own individual rating on the firm. So they are important, but they have to be careful that they don't listen, in my opinion, um, to the corporates and and to investors, that they will end up just research functions.
1: They will end up as research functions? I don't follow. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. So, again, if, if, if if you find that a significant proportion of institutional investors don't consider the rating, then what's the rating for?
1: And why are you as a corporate spending time kind of courting the ratings and, and trying to... Well,
0: there are, there are several companies in Europe, um, very large companies in the, in the white paper, who just do not engage with ratings agencies any longer. What they do, a bit like Reg FD, they publish all of their uh, ESG KPIs on their website and it's there for everyone to consume because the problem that they've had it historically is that they couldn't engage with the ratings agency in a meaningful way. Hmm. So they just stopped engaging. So if that becomes the norm, then they'll be less relevant. Uh,
1: we talked about ratings agencies and how to approach them, and then another sort of barrier, to we touched on is, is these disclosure frameworks and and their, their, um, the cacophony of them, essentially. Uh, It's confusing for IR people. Uh, Any thoughts on how to?
0: Yeah, I mean, kind of yes and no. Uh, There's three big frameworks out there. GRI, which is the the global standard, which about 75% of companies um, uh, disclose on. Then you've got SASB, um, which again is really designed more on financial disclosure in terms of um, institutional investors um, have actually helped. Uh, develop the whole SASB framework. So, uh, if, if if you're looking to appease your investors, report SASB. Uh, GRI has the granularity. Um, and then you've got TCFD, which is a relatively new one, but, you know, most companies in, in Europe will have to um, uh, report TCFD style because they'll be regulated to do so. So, when advising companies which framework they should follow, um, Perhaps the simple advice is until things um, either standardize or converge, all three, um, and that way you've got everything more or less covered. Um, Yes, it's perhaps more of an expensive exercise um, and it will take more resources to do so, but if you want to to make everyone happy uh, in the short term, that's perhaps what's required.
1: Let's say you're a small or medium-sized company, and you have a limited amount of funds. Um, Specific uh, advice on on sort of tackling that?
0: Well, I I think, you know, what we heard from investors is it's get on the path, you know, get on that that Mm. road of um, opening up upon disclosing, however small... Start the process at some point. Don't say, "Well, this is just too big. I don't have the resources to, to do it, so therefore, I won't." You'll be penalised for that. Um, I think a lot of investors want to see that you want to do that. Um, obviously, things will change over time as, as as things become more mainstream. You'll be expected to do that regardless. But for now, I think for companies, if they can at least start on the road. Um, that they'll be rewarded for that. And that's really what we're hearing from the fact side. it's it's just get started.
1: And that's your Ticker Podcast. Our thanks to Investor Updates' Patrick Mitchell. And a quick reminder, thinking about a return to in-person investor meetings, you're not alone. So is our panel on the next IR Magazine webinar, Structuring Your 2021 Investor Marketing Calendar. That's coming up live online this Wednesday, January 27th at 11 a.m. Eastern. Sign up on Bright Talk. And thanks for listening. In
0: Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette.